0: Hello and welcome to episode 296 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Last week we looked at the dreadful murder of Barry Wallace by William Beggs and today we continue the story looking at the other victims of Beggs. As always, let me begin by thanking all my supporters at Patreon but especially the new members of this community. That is David Stracy, Meg Ebner and Harley Q. Thank you so much for your support, which is so much appreciated. Join us at patreon.com slash crime. The current competition for Patreon supporters is for two backstage tickets for my London show in August, with Absinthe on tap. To be in the draw for that prize, and why wouldn't you be, just head to Patreon today. One more piece of help that I'd like from you, if that's at all possible, is to complete the survey on my podcast. It'll take about five minutes, and the first prize is a life-changing £50 Amazon voucher. If you go to any of my social channels, you'll see the link to the survey. And if you can't find it by any chance, please just drop me a note at adam at uktruecrime.com, and I'll drop you the survey. Thanks a lot. So no guess the month and year game today. I know, it'll be back next week when we look at a brand new story. So let's get straight to it. You will recall last week we looked at how 18 year old Barry Wallace went missing in December 1999 after his work Christmas party when he crossed paths with William Beggs. It's not clear at what time Beggs came across Barry Wallace on the 4th of December. He still continues to declare his innocence, although he did boast later to a friend of a sexual conquest that night with a sweet young man. Sickening, isn't it? What is absolutely clear is that Barry was taken to Beggs's flat where he was secured on the wrists and ankles, beaten, seriously sexually assaulted and stabbed with a needle. Beggs then chopped up his body and deposited it in Loch Lomond and the sea off the west coast of Scotland. We finished last week hearing how after Beggs was convicted of murder, the police revealed that when they searched his flat in Kilmarnock, looking for evidence about the disappearance of Barry Wallace, they found much more than just the evidence presented in court. It wasn't just Barry's blood that was found in Beggs's home. There was blood from seventeen different men discovered. There were pictures of young men all over his place as well as what was described as souvenirs and trophies. Had William Beggs killed more innocent young men? The answer is yes, and let's go back to the northeast of England in nineteen eighty seven to find out just what happened. 28-year-old Barry Oldham was originally from Bolton, but had not really settled during his 20s. He'd enjoyed working in bars and liked to move around. In May 1987, he headed to Newcastle in the northeast to see how the scene was there. He arrived late evening at Newcastle bus station, stored his belongings in one of the lockers and headed off to the gay nightclub Rock Shots. It was the last time that anyone would see Barry alive as his mutilated body was found shortly afterwards by a gamekeeper at Claybank Car Park by Cleveland Forest on the North Yorkshire Moors. He had suffered a violent death. His throat had been slashed so badly that his jugular vein had been severed and an attempt had been made to cut off his limbs at his elbow, his knees and his neck. Beggs was a regular at Rock Shots nightclub and with his track record was an immediate suspect, and with striking similarities to the case we've heard about of Barry Wallace, when detectives went to his flat they found Barry's blood. This time Beggs confessed to the murder. He said he had killed Barry, but it had been self-defence when the two had been camping on the North Yorkshire moors, and Barry had actually attacked him. Detectives didn't believe it for one moment, and they believed that after... Beggs had taken Barry home from the nightclub. The pair had had sex, after which Beggs had killed Barry, tried to dismember him and then dumped him on Moorland. Beggs faced a jury at Teesside Crown Court charge with the murder of Barry Oldham. He was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison, which was overturned on appeal. The Crown had applied to try him on a number of wounding charges involving other men alongside the murder charge. The judge at his trial at Teesside Crown Court in 1987 allowed the application, but the Court of Appeal said that he was wrong to have done so and quashed the conviction. This meant that for the gruesome murder of Barry Oldham, Begg served just two years in prison. And quite how the family of Barry Wallace, who was killed 12 years later, must feel about this, when Begg should have been locked up in jail at the time he murdered Barry, I think we can only imagine. Tony Fitzgerald, who was head of North Yorkshire CID, when Beggs was convicted of this crime, later said, When we caught Beggs all those years ago, we seriously thought we would caught a serial killer in the making. We thought we were lucky because we managed to catch him after his first killing. When his conviction was overturned on appeal, I remember I was quite aghast at what had happened in the light of what we knew about this man. So Beggs was out of prison and a free man, and he knew he had to move away from the northeast of England and make a new start. After his release from prison, Begg moved back to Northern Ireland, but he wasn't here for long, and then he headed to Kilmarnock in Scotland, just south of Glasgow. It's said that his neighbours here were very wary very early on, and even nicknamed him Fred West due to his creepy behaviour. He managed to secure a job as a housing officer with Kamarnock and Loudon Council, but this didn't last long as he was sacked after it was found he'd lied on his CV, which he had put together in prison, waiting for the outcome of his appeal. Now, I'm sure that you and I don't know many people who, even if they don't exactly lie on their CV, they always stretch the point somewhat, don't they? But Beggs, well, he took this to another level. A council spokesman said, he said he was working on some kind of MSc project within the prison, but it turned out he was actually a prisoner. That's enough to dismiss anybody. I suppose my only surprise is that the council picked up on it. But much more serious than this is that soon after he arrived in Scotland, he managed to infiltrate the Scout movement to give him access to young boys. He was actually made an assistant leader of the 72nd. Ayrshire Scout Group in Kilmarnock on September ninth, 1990, helping to look after boys aged from 11-16. to 16. He was, in fairness, a good scout leader, winning the trust of the boys and the fellow scout leaders. It was only in May 1991 that scouting chiefs found out about who he was and what he had done. Just imagine the fear felt by the Scout leaders at that moment of realisation about the truth, about who they were working with. Jim Duffy, the chief exec of the Scottish Council of the Scouts Association, explained what had happened, saying, We received an anonymous tip-off that Beggs had been in court on serious charges. We paid for a copy of the appeal court transcript. It was felt he was a completely inappropriate person And he was told to get out of scouting in Scotland. Meanwhile, the violent attacks on young men continued. In 1991, he met Brian McQuillan, a young church worker at a gay club in Glasgow. The pattern was disturbingly familiar. Unfortunately, the pattern was disturbingly familiar when Beggs attacked Brian with a razor. Brian was, of course, terrified and naked he jumped through a glass window at the front of the house to escape. For this, Beggs was sent to prison for six years. Now this Brian McQuillan was a seriously brave man, and he wrote to a number of newspaper editors in December 1992, warning that Beggs was a particularly dangerous man who would attack others. He wrote, The largest part of my anxiety and sorrow is for the parents and friends of Barry Oldham, and if he is once again set free, most likely, his next victim. Brian spoke candidly later about his ordeal to the Daily Record newspapers, saying, "I was jumping to die. I went out head first so I'd be killed, and people would know what that bastard had done to me." Beck seemed a very plausible guy, and we had a lot in common. We helped stop a fight outside the club and we got chatting. He asked if I wanted to go back to his place for a drink and said he would give me a lift to work the following evening. In the car going to Komarnok, he was very chatty and funny. It was about 4am when we got back and Beggs left the sitting room. When he came back, he had this huge mug which he said was filled with Grosch beer. It tasted really funny and I couldn't drink it he was really keen on me finishing it. Then it just hit me. I was feeling really drowsy like I was drunk out of my mind, but I hadn't had that much to drink in the club. I never suspected it at the time, but I'm convinced that Beggs drugged me. I was completely out of it, and that's when I started to realise that something wasn't right. He was nervous, and he said things like the only time he had sex with other men was when they were both very drunk. He woke me on three different occasions, putting the cup to my mouth and making me drink it. He insisted I should finish it. We didn't have sex, but when I woke at one point, he was ripping my pants off and he was dressed in only his boxer shorts. The last thing I remember was him leading me through his hallway to his bedroom and shutting the door. I woke up with this incredible pain. I was lying on my back and he had pushed my left leg up in the air towards my shoulder and I actually thought he was biting the top of my leg. There was blood everywhere. I grabbed his hair and pushed his face away. I jumped up and ran to the door to escape, but he chased me. I knew then something was dreadfully wrong. There was blood everywhere. It sprayed up his bedroom walls, covered him, and saturated his bed. I grabbed his wrist, but there was so much blood over his arms, he could easily slip away. He was just pulling me forward, saying, Come back to bed. You've made me do this, over and over again. The look in his eyes is something I'll never forget. He was completely demented. Something had snapped in his head. I was aware of what was happening and I just tried to stay calm. But he wouldn't let me leave that room. I knew I was gone, dead. There was no way someone who could inflict that kind of pain was going to let me out of that house alive. He was going to kill me. I could see sunlight through the curtains by this time and I saw the outline of the window frame. It was only about three foot wide, but it was divided with metal frames. I didn't realise it was so high up, but I was going out head first to die, so people would know just what that bastard had done. Within three years, Beggs was out of the slammer for this attack, and back in his command at Council Flats. His neighbours were understandably unhappy to have him back, and did all they could to get him evicted. Can you imagine that, having Beggs as a neighbour? You'd never get any sleep, would you? Beggs didn't care. He had no intention of moving on again and he bought his council flat and installed security lights and a video camera in an air duct so he could monitor the whole street to look out for any potential attacks on his property or his car. But the police were watching him closely too. He was asked to contact officers in 1994 about a murder inquiry, but he chose not to do so, and no action was taken. He was also spoken to a number of other times up until the murder of Barry Wallace in 1999, but no action was ever taken against him. And Beggs reinvented himself again. He was reasonably bright academically, and by 1999, he was working for an Edinburgh call centre and studying for a doctorate at Paisley University in applying computer technology to higher education. He also lectured at Paisley University and on roundabout management at Mountfort University in Milton Keynes. But he continued to bring them back to his flat from the Glasgow Club Bennets and other places nearby. But he was not convicted of any other attack until the murder of Barry Wallace. But does this mean he stopped attacking young men? I don't know what you think but it seems highly unlikely to me. I want to go back to a quote from Brian McQuillan, the man who jumped out of the window at Beggs' Kamarnock flat, who said, I just feel so sorry for Barry Wallace's family because I always knew that Beggs would murder again. I don't believe he went that long before he killed again. I'm convinced he has murdered and attacked others we don't know about. In my eyes, he's a psychotic serial killer. First he starts off young with the petty, but gruesome, little things, then graduates to killing Barry Oldham. It's so sad that Barry Wallace had to die before he was locked up again. In some ways I feel sorry for Beggs because he is so sick. Years ago, I don't know if anyone could fully grasp what they had on their hands, but this time they must cage this monster for the rest of his life. If released, he'll kill again. So are there other murders that could have been carried out by William Beggs? Yes, is the answer. There were rumours about a variety of other murders he could be responsible for, as far south as the disappearance of Damien Nettles in the Isle of Wight, a story I covered recently in a Patreon bonus episode. But this seems unlikely to me. A view shared by Detective Superintendent Stephen Heath, who led the investigation, into the disappearance of Barry Wallace. He thinks Beggs is more likely to be responsible for local crimes. Beggs travelled, he said, but it was more individuals who came to Scotland from all over. That was his forte. His ability to ingratiate himself. He's an intelligent man. He would offer Scottish hospitality and have enough to drink. On many occasions nothing happened, but he may have wanted to keep something from them. We are trying to trace everyone who was ever there at his flat. We have traced many people who were there and who were fine. We do have evidence to indicate that some people were in that house that we have not traced. Let's take a look now at some of the unsolved murders where Beggs could potentially be responsible. Number one, the murder of 24-year-old Derek Shearing, whose body was found in bushes in the east end of Glasgow just by the Celtic Football Club Stadium in 1994. He'd been strangled, and his half-naked body is dumped in weeds. If you know Glasgow, the last sighting was at about 6.30pm, on the 25th of September 1994, walking from Glen Islay Street towards London Road, and his body was found the next day. As I record this in July 2022, Nobody has been convicted of his murder. During the original investigation, it was suggested that Derek knew his killer and had agreed to meet him outside a club, or maybe he'd met his murderer in the centre of Glasgow and invited him home. So could Beggs have killed Derek? Previous attacks tended to be at Beggs's home and involved knives and razors, and another man was charged with Derek's murder in 2015 but cleared in 2017, after it was suggested that DNA samples might have been contaminated. At the time of Derek's murder, Beggs was a free man, having just been released from jail for the attack on Brian McQuillan, and was quizzed about Derek's murder in jail in 2001, so, although seemingly unlikely, it is a possibility. The deaths of two other men seem more likely to be the work of Beggs. Paul Christie, whose leg bones were washed up on a beach in Larg on the west coast of Scotland in the year 2000, just up the coast from Troon. And 21-year-old student, Colin Switek, whose body was found in the River Clyde in 1997. Let's take a look at Paul Christie first. Age 27, he was a postgraduate student and a member of Mensa. He was studying for an MA in Environmental Studies at Strathclyde University and he lived in Largs. In February 1998, he arranged lunch with a friend in a couple of days, but he didn't show and was never seen alive again. All the appeals for information about his disappearance came to nothing and it was just over two years later that a swimmer in the sea in Largs came across a human bone. This was soon confirmed to be part of Paul. No other parts of the body were ever discovered. His mum had died the year before, not knowing whether her son was alive or dead. His dad, Sandy, said, Paul didn't have any enemies as far as I know, so at the time he went missing I ruled out foul play. But after the bones were confirmed as Paul, Sandy said, There were a few strange things about the circumstances surrounding his disappearance. One of the last people to see Paul alive was a policeman. He went to his door by mistake and saw Paul with three other people, also in the house. Despite appeals by police, these three people have never come forward, which I find very strange. Sandy added that the police could not tell how Paul his death because not enough of his body had been found. He was never the type to take his own life in my opinion and I'm still of that opinion. I believe it must have been a terrible accident. Was it a terrible accident? Did Paul take his own life? Or did he have the awful misfortune to cross the path of Beggs? 21-year-old student, Colin Switek, was working in a bar while searching for a job in science after graduating with a first-class degree in chemical engineering from Strathclyde University. Colin disappeared after a night out with friends at Bennett's nightclub in 1997, a club at which you'll recall that Beggs was a regular. Colin from Glasgow was last spotted at about 3am on the 24th of November outside Santini's chip shop in the city centre, an hour after he'd left Bennett's. His body was found in the River Clyde five months later. Detectives said there were no suspicious circumstances, but the cause of his death was never established. His friends didn't think that their friend had taken his own life, but of course none of us can ever say for certain. So like Paul Christie, was it a terrible accident? Had he taken his own life? Or maybe, had he run into William Beggs in Glasgow that evening? Let's finish today's story where we started with the murder of Barry Oldham. Once Begg's conviction was quashed on appeal, on a technicality, as the law stood, double jeopardy rules meant he could never be tried again. But years after the law changed, the CPS received a letter from Barry's dad, Albert Oldham, asking them if they were able to consider a new prosecution. The cold case unit of North Yorkshire's police major crime team have reviewed the case regularly and from my reading it seemed that sources confirmed that the force would make every effort to persuade the CPS to mount a new case. But a more recent source has now conceded they do not believe the case will meet the high bar set by the CPS to consider prosecuting someone for the second time for the same murder offence. The source said, The blood in Beggs' flat was identified as Barry Oldham's. Although DNA techniques are now much more advanced and would produce a far stronger statistical case, the professional judgment is that it would not be accepted as fresh evidence and that the CPS are unlikely to seek a new trial. Those two words, professional judgment, hmm. I guess with begs behind bars and resources tight, the decision shouldn't be a surprise. Is it the right one, do you think? And from 2019, Beggs was free to apply for parole, something that appalled Barry Wallace's dad Ian. He said, Barry was 18, a good lad, with all his life ahead of him. Any parent who loses a child can never get over it. And it's especially hard to know that the nature of your child's death was so brutal. We've always known that Beggs had killed before, and had he still been locked up, instead of getting out on a technicality, he would not have been free to kill Barry. If the justice system in England can't do the right thing and prosecute him again for the murder of Barry Oldham, it's up to the Scottish system to deliver justice for both his victims. So what do you make of what we've heard today and last week? Beggs is, as we speak, still behind bars. And I think that we can all agree that everyone we love is just a little bit safer today because of that. Let's hope that the authorities keep him there for the rest of his life. They have to, don't they? Don't they? We know that two people were killed at the hands of William Beggs and many others have been hurt and families destroyed. We talk about the impact of any murder on this podcast and the ripple effect from one killing which spreads so widely and often impacts for whole generations. And I think what we've heard over these last two weeks about William Beggs the effects of this one man—how many lives has he affected? How many people has he destroyed? I do hope they keep him behind bars. Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. To discuss this story or any other aspect of UK true crime, please head to the Facebook group. Just search "UK True Crime," no kidding, and you will find almost eighty-two thousand of us ready to chat. UK True Crime 24-7. And to support the show, please head to patreon.com slash UK True Crime. Loads of bonus episodes, other exclusive content and competitions, such as your last chance to win backstage tickets for my live show in London in August. Tickets are just £12, so get yours now. And you can join Patreon for as little as £1 a month and cancel at any time. Not that you would ever want to, of course just head to patreon.com slash UK true crime. Okay, so that's all for me for another week. I'll speak to you again on Tuesday for another tale from the UK's 37th most popular true crime host. Until we speak again next week, please do take it easy, despite all the others. Stay classy. Cheerio for now.